Well, as far as we know, this uh, tradition of Mother's Day goes back centuries to something called Mothering Sunday. Uh, it actually, uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't about mothers. It was about Christians returning to their mother church. Uh, so, you know, the church you got baptized in or catechized in. So on that Sunday, especially in Europe, Christians would sort of return uh, back to their, uh, their churches. And over time, of course, that tradition, that, that uh, fourth, I think it was the fourth Sunday in Lent when that was celebrated, it began to be sort of secularized, began to be about mothers, not, not the mother church, and it began to be about kids giving gifts to mothers. And then finally, I think early 1900s, Anna Jarvis was the one who um, lobbied uh, Woodrow Wilson to get Mother's Day put on uh, the calendar, uh, and, and that process spread around the globe internationally. Uh, the interesting thing about Anna Jarvis's campaign is that it was less about actually celebrating mothers as much as remembering mothers that had passed on, in her case, particularly her grandmother. Uh, it was also interesting that before she died, she regretted that she ever got involved in the campaign uh, because Mother's Day had become so secularized, particularly by the flower industry, the greeting card industry, that she actually began lobbying to try to get it uh, denounced. Um, now, in the strange world of irony, Anna Jarvis died with some significant medical bills that were paid by the floral and greeting card industry. So, Mother's Day. <laughs> Way to ruin it, Rick. I will say one thing that has been good about uh, the way our culture has changed, we, we sometimes think our culture is becoming so progressive, it's always getting worse and worse. Sometimes that's not the case. Uh, we recognize now that Mother's Day is a day that's difficult for people. That's a good thing that we realize that now. Uh, it's a day of grief for some people, uh, not just grief in terms of losing a mother, uh, our mothers losing a child, but uh, mothers, people who want to be mothers and can't be. Just this past week, I had a conversation with someone in tears who desperately wants to be a mother, and the Lord has not willed that. Uh, so that's part of the reality of a day like today. Guilt is also part of it. Uh, mothers who um, feel guilt in terms of never being the mother they think they should be, some mothers who were never the mother they should be and feel guilt about it, some who feel guilt that they shouldn't be feeling because of their tendency to compare themselves to um, other mothers. And it's also a day of hurt for some people, some people who uh, really never had a decent mother, uh, and some mothers who wish they had been decent mothers. But my intent today is really to use the topic of motherhood to speak to everyone who's ever had a mother or father, which if you do the math, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and the reason I, I think this is important, and I don't always do this on Mother's Day, but um, we do have a uh, commandment, honor your father and mother. Now, I think most of you know this, or if not, here's a brand new idea perhaps to you. These 10 commandments that God gave to his people Israel were divided into two categories. Uh, there was the ones about loving God, and there was the ones about loving your, your neighbor. 
And Jesus summarized all Ten Commandments under those two, two headers. And if you notice, the very first commandment under loving your neighbor is to honor your father and mother. The high priority of the stabilizing presence of families where parents are honored is chief among what enables a society even be a society. So keep that in mind. And so what I want to do today is honor uh, mothers, really parenting to some extent, by taking a moment to appreciate a mostly unappreciated calling of mothers. But I have to first say something. I have to first say something that 30 years ago, I wouldn't have needed to say this at all. I have to say something that uh, may not be comfortable for some ears uh, today, but nonetheless it needs to be said, and that's this. Mothers, for the most part, are more God-endowed for self-sacrificing nurturing than fathers. Let me just say that again. Mothers, for the most part, are more God-endowed for nurturing than fathers are, for especially this self-sacrificing, nurturing devotion. Now, by the way, that's not to say that mothers are better parents than fathers. They have two very different roles designed by God. Now, I know that's called traditional values, not truth. And those traditional values, a large number of people think that we've sort of outlived their usefulness. In fact, some feel very strongly that the thing I just said is quite offensive. It's a form of patriarchal oppression. So what I want to say today is that I'm operating under the premise, just to be upfront from the very get-go, that there is a design by God for mothers that's different than for fathers. And that design by God, we find it in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, before sin enters the world, and even in Genesis 3, after sin is entered the world. And it's repeated again thousands and thousands of years later in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. These distinct roles for uh, fathers and mothers. And there is a single act of Jesus that I think captures the soul of parenting in the Bible. A single act of Jesus that captures the soul of parenting, especially mothering, and it's found in John chapter 13, and it's the scene where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Now, please don't think that I think this. <laughs> it doesn't capture mothering because this is some menial household chore. Okay, can I just go on record and say that? That is not why I think this captures mothering. It's because this act of Jesus, of foot washing, is a self-sacrificing act, as we're going to see, of this tender and tenacious, just ongoing love uh, of Jesus, his devotion to the unappreciative. And I think in that sense, Jesus becomes the ultimate mother for us to his disciples. So let's read John 13. You'll find the passage there in your bulletin. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I think it's fairly obvious from this passage if not, I'll certainly point it out. Maybe that's what I get paid for. Um, the act, there's a difference in these first few verses between what Jesus did and all the setup before that. So that's why I've highlighted this. If we just started, imagine if all, all, all you read was Jesus rose from supper, he laid outside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin and washed the feet of his disciples. It doesn't start there. Instead, there's this prelude. There's this important emphasis going on here between what Jesus did and all that was going on behind the scenes before he did that. And this is extremely important for us to see these, these words that come before the actual actions of Jesus. And so I want to highlight just one here. It says... He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. There's two ideas in this word in here. There's the idea of enduring and extent. So you, you could probably put the two of them together by saying uh, that Jesus, Jesus loved them without let up. And Jesus loved them without holding back. Enduring and extent. In fact, the New International Version grabs this best by saying, by saying it this way, he now, in this very moment, showed his disciples the full extent of his love. This is no small act that's happening here in John chapter 13. For just a moment, put yourself in the sandals of Jesus. It's always good when you're reading the Bible to just stop, take a breath, and just, especially when you're in a narrative like this, just imagine the scene. At this very moment, think of all the things that are going through Jesus, his moments before his execution, his arrest, his betrayal. At this very moment, Jesus, when Jesus needed their attention, when he needed the love of his disciples, when Jesus was on the brink of agony and anxiety, what do we read? That his attention was on his affections for his own. And by the way, there's just one sort of application here right off the bat for children of all ages. How often do you ask your mother, how are you doing? I can count on one hand, probably in my first 30 years of life, I asked my mother that. I always expected it to be the other way around. She was just there to hear about how I was doing. When's the last time you asked how she was doing with a desire to really listen for however long it took her to finally have an ear to speak to? <laughs> She's a woman usually of nonstop demands, her responsibilities of things she has, needs that she has to meet. 
She expected her whole life to be on call for her children. And yet, we can be unaware that she's battling with things. She's battling with chronic guilt, chronic pressure, chronic concern for her children no matter how old they are, chronic comparison with other women, chronic uncertainty about what it even means to be a mother. If she's a grandmother, she's dealing with that tension between a heart that aches to be a thousand times more for her grandchildren and yet energy that says, nope, you got limitations. So while Jesus in John chapter 13 is focused on what his kids need most, an example of his enduring and full extent of his love, what were his kids and disciples focusing on? Well, thankfully, Luke t- comes back and tells us what they were doing at the meal. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Wow, this is really shocking news, isn't it? That's called sarcasm, by the way. You see, by now they should have known, right? Could you imagine being with Jesus? I don't mean just his presence. I mean, can you imagine physically being with Jesus for three years, watching him do what he did, marveling at him in so many ways? By now they should have known better all the sweet moments and lessons that he had. But here they were sitting down, remember that some of you know this, but uh, it's not like Da Vinci where they're all sitting at a table, you know, in one long row for Da Vinci to paint them. Uh, they're, they're, they're around a round table and they're leaning down on their elbows and they're eating. And so guess what? Your feet, would have been, which have been traveling on dirty roads, are in the face of the guy next to you. And the, normally the lowest servant, usually not even a Jew, a Gentile, a household servant would be the one who would wash your feet. And so here they are eating with dirty feet, they, I'm sure, at some moment thought, someone needs to wash our feet. This meal would be a whole lot better if his feet weren't in my face. But I'm not going to get up and wash his feet because I'm in the midst of a debate comparing myself to him. You know what's not recorded here? You know what's not recorded? Jesus did not wish wash the feet of Judas. That's not in John 13. It says the devil's already entered the heart of Judas to betray him. Here is a mother, if you will, who knows that one of her own children is lost for good. Can you imagine the heartache of that? And not only is this child lost for good, this child is about to stab you in the back. I wonder if Jesus even knew the end of Judas. Remember what he said to him? Can you imagine a mother saying this to a child? It would have been better had you not been born. Imagine the ache of that. But Jesus washes Judas's feet. You know what else is not recorded in John 13? Jesus angrily got up, slammed the basin down, slashing water everywhere and saying, After all I've taught you, at this very moment when I'm about to take on God's wrath meant for you, and you're caught up in sibling rivalry, you should be doing this, not me. I'm done with you. I got to think at some point, some mothers somewhere have thought that about some child. (laughs) 
in verses 4 and 5 are simple details, but there's so many of them. They're unnecessary. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He, I mean, everybody knows that's what you do when you wash feet. Why these details? John, the Apostle John, is the only one that records this story. I got to think this scene is tattooed forever in the memory of John. And this is how I envision John experiencing this moment. We were all gabbing about greatness, ignorantly discussing our future status in the kingdom when Jesus, who'd been sitting silently and watching us all, rose up. Instantly, life went into slow motion. We were following his every movement with a kind of this-isn't-happening stupor. And with calm dignity and the lowest of humility, Jesus silenced our self-absorbing sibling rivalry. Do you know that some Christian traditions think so much of this moment, they turned it into a sacrament? That in addition to the Lord's Supper, they also believe that we should do foot washing. And some have said this is the cross before the cross. Where justice and rebuke were deserved, there was humiliation and self-sacrifice. Here was preaching in its most powerful form, example. And so he says to him later in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garment back on and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, if I then, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. And that's why this other piece of this text stands out to me. Jesus knew and Jesus knowing. Why, why all of this language before we get to the action where he gets up and, and washes? Not only does it say he loved them to the end, to the fullest extent, uh, but it says here that Jesus knew something. What did he know? Well, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands in verse 3. He knew that he'd come from God. He knew that he was going back to God. In verse 1, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Here's what I think is happening. Jesus was aware of the Father's big picture the whole time in his life. He was always mindful that there's always something bigger going on in life than life itself. And then the other thing he knew is he had this absolutely safe intimacy with the Father. And those two things, this, this intimacy with the Father that was safe, that wasn't threatened by anything Jesus did or didn't do, uh, and this, uh, this constant awareness of the Father's big picture, what it did for the love of Jesus is it kept his mothering love for his disciples 
from being tied to reciprocation. Do you know what I mean about how your love is tied to reciprocation? It's really hard to keep loving someone when you're not getting love back from that person, reciprocating back. I grew up in the desert. I'll never forget, we'd go camping, and uh, we would have soaking wet towels. We'd throw them out on the line, and practically about the time they hit the line, they were dry. They dried out before we even hung about. I think it's a beautiful picture of our love for other human beings, even perhaps the greatest love of all, a mother for her child. It gets dried out. It gets used up. Jesus had a hose hooked to the fire hydrant of the Father's love, and that's what kept his love from not drying out for these unappreciative disciples right in front of him. So, two points of application and then we're done. A question for mothers and a question for uh, the rest of us. So, for mothers, are you overextended horizontally and kinking your vertical supply line? It's as easy as water flowing downhill. Mothers, I think, more than any other breed of individual, can get caught up in doing more than what God wills for them. The stress of chasing success can suffocate the joy of simple, ordinary faithfulness. You know, it's a dangerous thing to want your kids to turn out great. At least it can be. It can be a dangerous thing to want your kids to turn out great, to be achievers, to be above average, to be happy, to be confident. What if the goal was simply for you being faithful to seek God first and his kingdom? What if, what if the goal for you as a mother was just simply to know the height, breadth, length, and depth of the love of God, as Ephesians 3 says, so that you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, so that you can love your neighbor, meaning your kid, and anybody else as instinctively as you love yourself. What if that's all there is to it, regardless of how your kids turn out? What if simple, ordinary faithfulness, all those unappreciated, seemingly ineffective menial tasks that you do to the unappreciative are, in fact, Christ-like selfless acts, the gospel love in human form. What if they really are that? And by the way, they are that. That Jesus life, by the way, that's that Jesus life that I just described, it's honestly boring and and doesn't even impress most people compared to all the other forms of mothering the world shoves down your throat nonstop. And because your relationship with your father should be like a fire hose constantly feeding you, enabling you to love your children to the end, I would say you need to regularly walk away from your kids. Here's a great piece of advice from this guy named Jesus. Even as the report about him went around everywhere and great crowds gathered to him and they wanted to be healed of all their infirmities, but he, the idea, the reason it says but rather than and, is that right in the midst of people demanding and needing so much from Jesus, he couldn't be found. 
because he would walk away from them for a higher priority. And if he didn't, he'd never be able to heal them. So, I would just say, stop paying attention to your parent gauge, meaning how good a parent you are, and pay attention to your fuel gauge. You know, just like every one of the rest of us, that when you're fatigued, you're vulnerable. So pay attention to your fuel gauge. Go and be a kid with your father. Go and be a kid with your father so that your love can keep overflowing to your own children. And now, really a question for us, the whole village that's required to raise a child. Are you willing to wash feet to do the unpleasant work of raising other people's children that you think belong to them alone? Mothering is not a one woman or one person calling. It has always been intended by God to be shared with a husband. Man and woman together was, is, and always will be the creator's design. And by the way, that is not a slam on single parents. That is a bow down and applause to single parents. Because single parents are heroes doing a job that was never intended for one person alone. No one person can always know what's best for another. The Bible calls that a fool, someone who's wise in their own eyes. But get this, mothering is not just supposed to be shared with a husband. It's also supposed to be shared with a whole extended family. Jeff read the text for us out of Deuteronomy, so I'll just remind you of a couple things uh, about that text. It says, and now, O Israel, who's he speaking to? Moses is speaking to the whole community of Israel. Listen, he says. Listen to God's word. Listen in order to keep God's word. Take care lest you forget God's word. And ultimately, make this known to your children and your children's children. And by the way, in case you didn't get it the first time, let me repeat it a few chapters later. Teach these diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, they're not supposed to be family devotion. They're supposed to be lifestyle devotion. As you're going through all of life, by the way, if you didn't get it, let me say it a few chapters later. In exact same words, teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up again. Take to heart the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. It's no empty thing I'm telling you, he says. It's your very life that you're passing on to these kids. Psalm 78 captures it even better. Don't hide these things from your children, speaking to the whole community of Israel. Tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. Make this part of your daily conversation. Tell of his might and his wonders. He established, he secured a witness for himself in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. He commanded it to teach their children so that the generation that isn't even yet born would know these things, so that they would arise and tell their children so that... They would secure their hope in God and nothing else. That's an enormous responsibility that God doesn't give just to a mom and dad, but to the whole community. That's why I appreciated Matt saying what he did 
uh, earlier here about all of us are uh, all hands on deck when it comes to the next generation. The absence of highly present external family. I can't say this enough. The absence of a highly present external family is a radical departure in our time from what has been normal in virtually every culture for all of human history. Do you realize the idea of suburbs and a man and woman living alone with their children is a relatively brand spanking new idea in the course of human history? And Proverbs says, better a friend who is near than a brother who's far away. So here is the weight of responsibility I want to give in all of you. I know you. I know that most of you do not have an extended family living within a few miles of you. And so guess what? You, the church family, are that extended family for every single child represented by this congregation. And the burden of responsibility is on every single one of us for every single child in this room. There's no easier way to say it. This is no lightweight responsibility. Parenting takes all of us, and we honor fathers and mothers by taking responsibility for the next generation. We're always going to feel inadequate in this task, but we should never feel hopeless in this task. And there's a reason why, and it's found in John 13. And with that, as a big teaser, we're going to stop and transition here to take the bread and cup, and I'll come right back to it. So the worship team and the fellas serving community could come forward. If you're with us this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, this table is open for you, and I invite you to come and down the center aisle and take bread and cup, and then I'll lead us in just a few moments as we all take it together. But I want you to see something in John 13, a few verses down, after he tells them, I've given this to you as an example, or actually right, right before that, in verses um, 6 and 7, he comes to Peter and says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And of course, Peter rightfully would react like, like most of us would. You shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. At least that seems to be the idea here. And then he says this. Um, after he says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. There's a lot more going on here than Jesus just doing a household menial task. There's a lot more going on here than Jesus simply showing them the full extent of his love. Remember, this is the cross before the cross. Jesus is saying, even in my normal duty task here, there's the symbolism of something I'm about to do to your very soul. And that's why I love this passage more than anything else, because of these simple little verses here. The one who is bathed is completely clean. And can you imagine these words coming out of Jesus' mouth in this moment to these unappreciative disciples? And you are clean. He's pronounced them clean. You know what? When we come here, I suspect there's not a Sunday, if you're honest, you don't feel like there's some filth on you. But all you have to do is 
let Jesus wash your feet. That's why he says, except for his feet. Jesus knows that even after he pronounces us clean, we're going to go out in the world, and every single day we're going to get our feet dirty. And you know what he does? With a big smile on his face, he sits here, and he waits for us to come and clean our feet over and over again. He never tires of it. He rejoices in it, taking the filth off us over and over and over again. He loved us to the end. And Jesus has pronounced you clean. And this is the thing, we will never be the parents we long to be, but we can enjoy this Teflon coating that he has put on us so that inadequacy and sinfulness is apparent. Every parent is failed as a parent in some way or another, but that sin does not stick to us because of the blood of Christ. It is a Teflon coating on us. And out of that freedom, we can point our kids ultimately to the only one that can fix them, which isn't us. We can point our kids to the best parent of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. So take a moment, let's pray, and then let's come and enjoy our cleansing. Lord, we know that no mother in all of her tender, heart-filled devotion to a child has loved us as much as you tenderly and tenaciously love us through self-sacrifice. In fact, we recognize in those sweet sacrifices of our mothers, the smell of your love behind that all. So even as we take a body and blood now, remind every mother here, every parent here, every person responsible for parenting that you are the perfect parent in whose adequacy we lean with our filthy feet and cleansed souls to rise from this moment in self-sacrifice, mimicking your foot washing of us. In Jesus' great name we pray and come. Amen.